From the silver screen to the printed page to the woods behind your house, incredible creatures are everywhere. For as long as I can remember, monsters have populated the landscape of my imagination. As a kid, I wanted to learn as much as I could about these legendary figures, and it turns out, I still do. I'm Mark Matsky, and this is Monster Study Group. Hello there and welcome. We've turned the corner into October and it's a special time of year for monster fans and lovers of all things spooky. While this might be a bit of a different Halloween, one thing that will probably not change for many of us is the movie marathon, whether spread out across the month or all at once on the 31st. For that reason, the next episode that we'll post will be on October 24th and in it, I'll present a short list of movies that I would pick for my own Halloween film festival. I'm pretty excited to say that I'll be joined by a very special guest, the first and only guest to appear on season one of Monster Study Group. I really can't wait, and I'm hopeful that you will enjoy it as well. Our study topic for today is strangely appropriate to the season. We're going to be talking about two of Toho Studios' weirdest monster movies, one of which functions as a loose sequel to the other. They are, of course, Frankenstein Conquers the World and War of the Gargantuas. There is an oddness to both of these movies that makes me really fond of them both, with elements of horror mixing with monster fantasy. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's get right into it with a G-Fan retrospective of Frankenstein Conquers the World by Richard Pusateri and J.D. Lees from issue number 30. Frankenstein Conquers the World Those four words make up one of the most bombastic and truly misleading titles in movie history. Such an exploitation factor puts it in a category with Frankenstein meets the space monster, Frankenstein 1970, or the other 50s and 60s cheapo films with fabulous titles. Actually, the Japanese Frankenstein monster has trouble conquering a bird or a wild pig, much less the world. Frankenstein Conquers the World ostensibly chronicles the Japanese Frankenstein monster's combat with a huge burrowing dinosaur called Baragon. The Japanese title is Frankenstein Tai Chite Kaiju, or Frankenstein vs. the Subterranean Monster. But it is also about mysteries without answers, dilemma piled upon uncertainty. Many crucial plot details remain obscure, with a variety of possible answers suggested, but rarely verified. The opening sequence shows a secret submarine voyage from Germany to Japan in the closing months of World War II. The myth of Frankenstein meets the grim reality of the most destructive war in history, as the monster's palpitating heart is transported to Japan for research into tissue regeneration. The reason for the move to Japan is repeatedly asked, 
but never explained. Indeed, the German doctor Reisendorf, seen caretaking the heart, is relieved of his charge without a word of explanation, the entire scene transpiring without any dialogue whatsoever. The film's lead characters are medical scientists whose research is going nowhere. Even the exact origin of the title monster is never determined. Is it a war orphan, mutated by eating the irradiated immortal heart? or the regenerated Frankenstein monster itself. No one seems to know for sure, certainly not the viewer. Of the two theories, the most plausible is the former. Given the nutritive requirements of the monster and later the severed hand, how could a disembodied heart have secured and ingested the food required to regenerate a whole new body? In addition to the fantastic elements, the movie presents horrors all too real, especially to the Japanese audience. While most Toho sci-fi films had references to atomic weapons testing, Frankenstein Conquers the World is probably the first to actually depict the 20th century's milestone event, the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. Immediately, the audience is introduced to the atom bomb and its effects on the innocent victims at the time. Subsequent attempts by the film's protagonists to help the victims yield no tangible results. The depiction of the event and the backdrop of the lingering effects 15 years later, although the film was released in 1965, its events took place in 1960, supply an all-too-real, horrific atmosphere for the ensuing melodrama. Another real horror, especially in Japan, is the ever-present possibility of an earthquake. By the time of the film's release, the Kanto earthquake of 1923 was a 20th century horror still within the memory of many older Japanese. The specter of earthquakes also features prominently in the movie's plot. Perhaps the dominant recurring element is hunger. In every major war, hunger is a reality, especially for refugees. Displaced civilians flee the horror of combat and find yet another horror, starvation. The startling portrayals of both ancient and 20th century curses, starvation, earthquake, nuclear warfare, and radiation disease, all occur in the first 20 minutes of this sci-fi horror film. By the middle, however, the tone has changed to silly fantasy, as if the subject matter became too grim to be entertaining. As the movie moves from horror to goofball entertainment, an anti-rock-and-roll motif emerges. While watching a teen dance program on TV, Frankenstein flies into a rage and throws the TV set out the window. Later, Frankenstein spoils a dance at sea, as Godzilla did in 1954, by threatening a boat full of dancers. At about the same time, Baragon devours revelers at a rural sock hop. In the person of Nick Adams, 
Frankenstein Conquers the World sports an American star, and peripherally, the plot deals with the relationship between Japanese and Americans after World War II. Adam's character, Dr. James Bowen, feels guilty about his connection to the atomic bombing, a heavy theme for escapist entertainment. Orphans of people killed at Ground Zero are dying from the effects of radiation, and American medical researcher Bowen tries to find a way to help such innocent victims of the war 15 years after the fact. Bowen repeats the thoughts of Takashi Shimura's unnamed doctor character, doomed to perish in the Hiroshima blast, that good in the form of medical discoveries can come from wartime suffering. In the real world, it is generally accepted that many beneficial medical discoveries have come from research on wartime injuries and diseases. Much of the time, Dr. Bowen adds to the mysterious atmosphere by uttering enigmatic non sequiturs and giving totally evasive answers to questions from representatives of the government and press. Bowen bonds well with the hospital's staff and patients, but his good intentions do not yield good results. His frustration at being unable to achieve success in his research leads him to seriously consider leaving Japan just as Frankenstein appears. The monster's ability to survive and even thrive due to radiation gives Bowen a new avenue of investigation. In a great leap forward in Japanese-American relations, Dr. Bowen has dinner with his assistant, Dr. Suko Togami, Kumi Mizuno. Their meal sets the stage for the introduction of the monster. After a scene where Bowen and Suko playfully banter regarding Japanese and American food in a well-stocked kitchen, they see a strange boy who has been struck down by a taxi in the street. He is perceived to be hungry, and Suko throws him a bag of what appears to be raw meat. It's possible the boy has been stalking Suko. She had previously encountered him in the process of making off with a neighbor's dog, intending to eat the animal. I'm sure you're wrong, replied Suko at the time, finding the story a little hard to swallow. Now, she's not so sure. The boy is soon captured and begins growing at an alarming rate. From that point on, Suko tends to the monster and its unrelenting appetite. A recurring element is the hunger motif, as the so-called Frankenstein boy continually displays anxiety about obtaining his next meal. Evidence of his hunger for food is the shocking discovery by young children of a slaughtered rabbit in an elementary school classroom. After the taxi incident, Suko lures Frankenstein out of a cave hideout and convinces the monster to come to the Hiroshima hospital. She feeds him while Bowen does research on his survival. As Frankenstein grows, probably due to being irradiated, his appetite increases. Suko and Bowen try to prolong their research, which ironically continues the work of Shimura's character. A naval officer who witnessed the arrival of Frankenstein's heart in Hiroshima visits Bowen and tells of a strange derelict boy who lived amidst the research hospital's war-ravaged ruins. Even this eyewitness is unable to conclusively solve the mystery of the monster's identity. Bowen's colleague, Dr. Kawaji, 
Tadeo Takashima, becomes obsessed with studying the radioactive survivor. Interviewing Dr. Reisendorf, the now aged German scientist says, if the boy's body parts can regenerate, it is definitely Frankenstein. Originally sympathetic to the monster's plight, Kawaji startles Suko and Bowen by saying he wants to identify the monster as Frankenstein by severing an arm or leg to see if it regenerates the lost limb. Kawaji's stealthy amputation plan is interrupted by an opportunistic TV crew which agitates the monster with bright lights, precipitating both his escape and their own deaths. Frankenstein's escape from the laboratory costs him a hand, but the severed member remains alive and needing food, which is supplied by Bowen and crew in the form of a protein solution. The ability of the hand to survive separate from the body brings scientist Kawaji further into the plot as the monster's identity as Frankenstein is firmly established by the living severed hand. The subsequent apparent death of the detached hand prompts Kawaji to scuttle both Bowen's research and Suko's attachment to the boy monster in order to continue his own obsessive studies. At this point, the delirious story becomes even dreamier as a second monster appears, shrouded in mystery. Wherever it attacks, there are no survivors to identify it. Its appearance at the same time as young Frankenstein is apparently a coincidence. The dog-faced monster is not named in the movie, but is beloved by monster fans as Baragon. An interesting parallel between the two creatures is their affinity for the subterranean world. Baragon is called the subterranean or underground monster in the original Japanese title. Though Frankenstein and Baragon both seek shelter underground, Baragon holds more symbolism in that it appears at sites of extractive industries such as oil fields, mines, and storage shafts from World War II. First appearing at an earthquake in an oil field, then reportedly at a tunnel disaster, and glimpsed at a mine cave-in, Baragon is linked with underground disturbances. Is Baragon deliberately associated with man's plundering of the planet by mining, tunneling, and oil extraction? Or do his movements simply cause earthquakes? While Baragon lacks a menacing presence with its grinning face and glowing horn, as a devourer of human beings, it means business. With its entrance, however, the film's tone grows overtly fanciful. The scenes of Baragon's rampages begin to appear as intentional humor. After attacking a henhouse, Baragon belches feathers. Similarly, Frankenstein's sometimes humorous hunt for food is highlighted by some amusing military bungling. In its middle section, the movie sheds any attempt at seriousness and spins off into demented fantasy. Unfortunately, the story's pace also slows, sometimes to a crawl. Driven by Suko's mission of mercy to feed the teen monster and Bowen's quest to learn its secrets, the researchers follow its trail to rural areas. Unknown to them, the death and destruction blamed on Frankenstein are actually being wrought by the new monster, Baragon. 
Even as the couple feels affection toward the ever-growing mutant, authorities and newspapermen are convinced Frankenstein is responsible for the mounting toll of murder, disappearances, and destruction. The decision is made to attempt to kill him, but in trying to carry it out, the military is portrayed as comically inept, having as much trouble locating Frankenstein as he does locating food. The submarine commander who remembered the arrival of the Frankenstein monster's beating heart brings more information to the science team. By virtue of some strange luck, he was also present at the scene of Baragon's appearance during the earthquake at the oil field. While Kawai's experiences give him a valuable insight into monster spotting, he also supplies Bowen and Suko with an alibi for Frankenstein. The mysterious second monster could be the real culprit in the killings. The scientists find their theory greeted with skepticism and Dr. Kawaji accepts what he believes is the inevitable. Taking matters into his own hands and convinced the military is going to kill Frankenstein anyway, Kawaji secretly plans to obtain the monster's brain and heart to continue his research, even though it means blinding him first. Kawaji's attempt to flush Frankenstein out of hiding backfires, and up pops Baragon instead. Bowen, Suko, and Kawaji, finally confronted by the elusive underground monster, desperately try to chase it away. Suddenly, Frankenstein appears, and the final battle begins. After ten minutes of well-executed but indecisive fighting, Baragon is apparently killed, and at that moment the ground collapses beneath Frankenstein's feet, and both monsters are swallowed by the earth. This seemingly random and arbitrary finale actually offers a bit of sensible symbolism. Every time Baragon appeared from beneath the ground, mankind was plundering the earth with oil wells, mine shafts, or storage caverns. The earth swallowing up Frankenstein after Baragon was slain presents an image of nature extracting revenge on the man-made freak that killed the planet's symbolic defender. Nick Adams gives a professional, restrained performance, maintaining a great deal of credibility amid all the kaiju capers. Kumi Mizuno is marvelous. Her role allows her to express a playful sensuality in her scenes with Adams, as well as convey concern for the welfare of the Frankenstein monster. She also has a great scene where she's running from Baragon, falls, looks up at the monster and screams exactly as did Momoko Kochi as Emiko Yamane in the original Godzilla. Akira Ifukube's score is moody and suspenseful, but sometimes seems used at random and out of sync with the action. The story by Takashi Kimura reflects the horror he used as background in Matango, in the United States' attack of the mushroom people. Inept police, hapless military, and self-serving bureaucrats seeking someone else to blame are classic bungling authorities of Kimura's scripts. The special effects work is somewhat uneven, but generally up to Eiji Tsuburaya's high standards. Though there are no scenes of city destruction, the large-scale miniatures, especially those used early in the film when Frankenstein is only about five meters tall, are superb. 
Subaraya overreaches himself in insisting on executing scenes of a horse and a wild boar with stiff models. Subaraya's motive lay in the difficulty of having animals perform on cue, but the results were injurious to the film as a whole. Indeed, some scenes of the boar were trimmed for the U.S. release. Nonetheless, the film is gorgeously photographed with many of the most impressive scenes taking place at night against an indigo sky. The Baragon costume is a winner. The matte shots are usually very impressive. The flaming forest is a breathtaking set piece and the slow motion photography works well in imparting the impression of Frankenstein's vastness. The ending of Frankenstein Conquers the World is unusually abrupt. The section of Earth under Frankenstein's feet collapses rather slowly, and it seems the monster could have easily hopped out of the sinkhole. In fact, the original Japanese ending has Frankenstein confronted by a gigantic octopus shortly after dispatching Baragon. The extra footage, comprising about three minutes, shows the multi-limbed mollusk dragging Frankenstein into a lake and under the water, never to resurface. Eiji Tsuburaya's fondness for octopi dated back to his original concept for Godzilla, and no doubt the creature's sudden appearance was at his insistence, but it was a concept whose time had passed. Stuart Galbraith's book, Japanese Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, suggests that Frankenstein Conquers the World was originally intended to have the devil fish. Dr. Bowen mouths the word in English, but the Japanese dub replaces it with odako, or a giant octopus, as the second monster, with Baragon substituted later. Galbraith conjectures that the octopus may have looked too phony to carry the film, resulting in its replacement by Baragon. However, the element of an underground monster seems to be reflected in all sections of the film, integrating it into the entire story. The concept of an aquatic monster appears nowhere except in the unused footage. Indeed, the movie had a strange genesis which seems to have been steeped in confusion. The June 1966 issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland reported that the film had been described by at least two different titles prior to its release, Frankenstein vs. Baragon and Frankenstein vs. the Giant Devilfish, and that it had been three years in preparation and shooting. This timeline is not improbable, allowing that the film was based on a story by UPA producer Ruben Berkovich, and no doubt subsequently conveyed to Toho by Berkovich's partner, Henry Saperstein. Toho had been interested in using Frankenstein as a character as far back as 1963, when screenwriter Shinichi Sekizawa penned a never-to-be-used screenplay entitled Frankenstein vs. the Human Vapor. Prior to the release of Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster in the West, the March 1965 issue of Monster World announced three upcoming Toho releases, Dogura the Space Monster, Godzilla vs. the Giant Devilfish, and King Kong vs. Frankenstein. It may have been that the introduction of the Berkovich story induced Toho to bump Godzilla in favor of Frankenstein and consider the possibilities of Frankenstein vs. the Giant Devilfish. As a follow-up, Godzilla vs. Frankenstein, a screenplay that 
by that title was completed by July of 1964 would have seemed a logical choice. However, by the time it became apparent that a giant octopus, the devilfish, was not a workable opponent for Frankenstein, Godzilla was no longer a prospect for its replacement. The Monster King's image had started its shift to that of a more sympathetic character who could hardly be depicted as a people-eating menace to be dispatched by a heroic Frankenstein. The answer was to create a new monster, Baragon, obviously cut from the same cloth as Godzilla, flame breath and all, but without any likable qualities. Tsuburaya wanted to salvage the octopus somehow, but after the ending had been filmed, cooler heads prevailed and the sinkhole sequence was quickly staged. Prints released in Japan have the same ending as the American version, but the octopus ending is used on the Laserdisc release. The role of Frankenstein was played by Koji Furuhata, his only genre role. The makeup was suggestive of the universal-style Frankenstein with its high forehead and flat-topped pate. The creature became more grotesque as it grew, becoming progressively hairier and more snaggletoothed. In spite of Bowen's disclaimers in the film, the monster's facial features were evidently Asian, which further buttresses the theory that it evolved from a Japanese war orphan who, in the grip of starvation, devoured the throbbing, radioactive heart of the immortal monster. In Baragon, Eiji Tsuburaya's team created one of Toho's most memorable monsters. While Frankenstein Conquers the World was Baragon's one significant role, his image remains very popular with kaiju enthusiasts to this day. The suit did a good job of concealing the form of the actor within, and was flexible enough to allow Baragon to assume a two-footed or a quadrupedal stance. The flap ears were an unusual adornment, and according to kaiju enthusiast Hikari Takeda, may have been significant. One of the unmade movies, King Kong vs. Frankenstein, could easily have been based on Willis O'Brien's idea to have Dr. Frankenstein create a new monster by sewing together the parts of various African animals. Could Baragon, with its elephant ears, rhino horn, and crocodile body and tail, have been a reference to O'Brien's concept? It would have appealed to Subaraya's sense of humor to have one of Dr. Frankenstein's creations battling another. In terms of the audience perception of the monster himself, the Japanese version deleted certain shots which made Frankenstein seem more violent and destructive, perhaps to generate audience sympathy for him. The American version left the scenes intact, in part because they made the movie a trifle more spectacular. The first occurs when Frankenstein breaks out of the hospital where he had been caged. The U.S. version shows a soldier being hit by falling rubble and Frankenstein glaring down at him. These shots did not appear in the Japanese version. Also, Frankenstein's snarl was more vicious in the American version. The second instance of extra shots in the American version took place after Frankenstein leaves Suko's apartment. The Japanese version shows the monster ducking into hiding from approaching police cars, then making a run for it, which causes a police car to go out of control and smash through a barricade. 
in the U.S. version, Frankenstein doesn't hide. Instead, he bends and uproots a lamp standard and throws it at the police cars. He then lifts a car and throws it. It lands, bursting into flames. As he runs off, the police car crashes through the barricade, but from a different angle, which makes the crash more explosive. The extra action, as well as Frankenstein's wild arm-waving and gesticulations, made the U.S. version portray a more wild and violent monster. Despite the subtle changes, the American version did not dilute the subtext of the lingering horrors of atomic weapons, as was the case in the American Godzilla King of the Monsters from 1956. The bombing itself, the suffering two decades later, and the American character's concerns during the first act are left intact. Although Frankenstein Conquers the World was not a critical success, it was an interestingly different film outside the Godzilla storyline, and it also provides the premise for one of Toho's enduring favorites, War of the Gargantuas. And now from GFAN issue number 123 from the spring of 2019 is a follow-up to the previous article, Eight Things to Love About Frankenstein Conquers the World. Frankenstein Conquers the World received considerable exposure in the U.S. when it was released by American International in 1966, but it remains one of the less known and lower ranked of Toho's Kaiju Ega output. Nonetheless, it stands out from the rest of Toho's Kaiju Ega for a number of remarkable reasons. Looking back more than 50 years after its production, it's easy to see that there's a lot to love about this unique, non-Godzilla expedition into the weird and wonderful. Here are eight examples. The Undying Monster. Always a name to conjure with. Frankenstein, in one form or another, is one of the most filmed characters in cinematic history. Three films using the Frankenstein name were made in 1965 alone. Frankenstein Conquers the World, Frankenstein Meets the Space Monster, and Jesse James Meets Frankenstein's Daughter. Toho may have been cashing in on the Frankenstein mystique, but at least they did it respectfully. Their Frankenstein, portrayed by Koji Furuhata, was a clone of the Undying Monster and referred to the original monster's origin. Also, the Toho Frankie was portrayed as a sympathetic, hunted creature that displayed many of the same redeeming qualities as the Karloff incarnation. The idea of a regenerating, irradiated Frankenstein grown to giant size has a certain sci-fi logic, and the resulting humanoid, agile kaiju was an entertaining alternative to the ponderous, rubber-suited creations previously created for the Toho stable. In fact, it could accurately be said that Toho's Frankenstein towers above all the rest. The Score of Ifukube Though composer Akira Ifukube was notorious for reorchestrating and reusing his previous work in monster films, his score for Frankenstein Conquers the World is one of his best. It successfully combines his traditional kaiju ega style with creepy themes to accompany the horror aspects of the film. 
Frankenstein and Baragon both get signature motifs that blend well, while Frankenstein's can be juiced up or toned down depending on whether he's locked in combat or stealthily stalking a victim. Ifakube also used an inspiring military march for when the JSDF rolls into town, though it's recycled from Varen the Unbelievable, as well as three separate rock instrumentals that really show off his versatility. Considering that the maestro scored more than 30 films in the years bracketing Frankenstein Conquers the World, it's a wonder he was able to pull off such a fresh yet familiar sounding score. But he did. Murase's Creation In spite of his limited number of appearances in Kaiju Ega, Frankenstein Conquers the World, Destroy All Monsters, and Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah. Baragon has always commanded a lot of respect and admiration among kaiju aficionados. One reason is the fantastic, unique, yet realistic design of the creature. Constructed by master monster maker Keizu Murase, Baragon's ears alone give him a distinct look amid his kaiju brethren. His movable eyes give him the ability to assume a variety of expressions, his well-shaped and padded body effectively concealed the human actor within, and his ridged back effectively conceals the ingress to the suit. He's effective as either a biped or a quadruped, has a snazzy nasal horn, and shoots an oral heat beam for good measure. The quality of the suit construction is shown by the fact that it was used as the basis for at least three Ultra Monsters, and then converted back into Baragon for Destroy All Monsters, an amazing piece of monster suit architecture. Lovely Leading Lady One of the loveliest stars in the Toho universe, Kumi Mizuno has left an indelible impression on G fandom as the first lady of Kaiju Ega after appearing in four during the 1960s and returning for Godzilla against Mechagodzilla and Godzilla Final Wars in the new millennium. In Frankenstein Conquers the World, she is charming and empathetic, as well as a knockout in about a dozen different highly tailored outfits. Her playful scenes with Nick Adams are so much fun to watch, but everything she does is good. She's a fine actress with a superb ability per to project her emotions as needed, even in situations as goofy as those in Frankenstein Conquers the World. It is her solicitousness for Frankenstein that brings the audience on side, making her role a key one in the film. Without Mizuno's presence, Frankenstein Conquers the World would only be a shadow of the film that it is. The horror of it all. Many kaiju ega have brought aspects of horror into the mix, but few so liberally and effectively as Frankenstein Conquers the World. It's only natural, as the character of Frankenstein is associated with horror, but credit must be given to the filmmakers to realize the potential and then bring it about. Instances of horror abound in the film. The remains of the animals killed by Frankenstein, the shot of the victims when Frankenstein breaks his bonds, the dismembered hand, the shadowy encounter with the monster in the powder magazine, and many more. There's also a lot of suspense generated at various points, such as the encounter with the young monster in the cave or the search for the giant Frankenstein in the foggy woods. 
these types of chills are a nice complement to the kaiju thrills and help to make Frankenstein Conquers the World a fuller emotional experience. Nick is sick. Every kaiju fan's favorite gaijin actor, Nick Adams, made his Toho debut in Frankenstein Conquers the World. As usual with all his roles, he threw himself into it with gusto and brought the character of Dr. James Bowen to likable life. Though there's barely a hint of romance between Bowen and his assistant, Suko Togami, the chemistry Adams shared with co-star Kumi Mizuno is evident nonetheless. Bowen is the central human actor in the film, and he brings a steadiness and rationality to the part, a nice counterpoint to the impulsiveness of Koaji, Tadeo Takashima, and the emotionality of Suko. It's unfortunate that Adams was not available to reprise the character in War of the Gargantuas the following year. His presence would have improved the picture immensely. Though the characters played by Nick Adams and Russ Tamblin were essentially the same, there's no comparison between how the two actors portrayed them. Adams brought his part to life, while Tamblin seemed to be sleepwalking through his. Marvelous Miniatures G-fans have been known to complain that there are no scenes of city destruction in Frankenstein Conquers the World, normally a staple of the genre. However, there are special effects and miniatures aplenty, and they rank right up at the peak of Eiji Tsuburaya's achievements. One reason is that on screen, Frankenstein and Baragon top out at about 20 meters, compared to 50 meters for the typical kaiju like Godzilla and Rodan. Setting the soundstage for shrimpier monsters allowed Tsuburaya to build his miniatures larger than normal, which in turn allowed for greater detail and realism. With the monsters removed, such locations as the fog-enshrouded farm, the ski village, the Akita oil refinery, and the neighborhood around Suko's apartment could easily have been taken for real rather than the meticulously constructed miniatures they are. Setting scenes in rural and forested areas made for a refreshing change in a new perspective, and the presence of larger homes and buildings allowed for some beautiful framing of shots, rather than having the monsters simply towering above them. The movie showcases a staggering number of special effects set pieces from a World War II battlefield, to a mountain cabin being destroyed by a flying tree, to Frankenstein's encounter with the fairy, to a submarine being bombed by an aircraft, to the depiction of Hiroshima both before and after the bombing, the bombing itself, and many more. Frankenstein Conquers the World provided a huge opportunity for Tsuburaya to show off his skills, and he was definitely up to the challenge. Travel Japan Many Toho special effects movies do a good job of showing the land of the rising sun, but Frankenstein Conquers the World does it better than most. The film sports a wide variety of locations, including Hiroshima, Osaka, Kyoto, Himije, Okiyama, Shimizu, Akita, Miyajima, and the dinosaur gallery of Ueno Museum in the forest around the base of beautiful Mount Fuji. Dr. Bowen and his crew are seen traveling by car, train, jetliner, and helicopter, 
and scenes play out in forests, caves, cities, on mountains, in the ocean, and by the seaside. Combine all that with two scenes taking place in Germany and a battleship-dodging submarine voyage from Germany to the Indian Ocean, and you've got a narrative of breathtaking scope. As a display of the beauty, culture, and widely varying lifestyles of mid-60s Japan, there's no better movie showcase than Frankenstein Conquers the World. Etc. And there's more. Honda's direction is crisp and fast-paced. There are a lot of brief but interesting scenes with minor but memorable characters. The story takes place over a long period of time, which gives it a feeling of substance. It is grounded in the real world of 1965, just before Toho Films entered the phase of super science. Aside from its fantastic premise, Frankenstein Conquers the World is comfortably grounded in reality. There are a ton of talented Toho actors in supporting roles, including Tadeo Takashima, Yoshio Tsuchiya, Takashi Shimura, Keiko Sawai, Ikkyo Sawamura, Kozo Nomura, Kenji Sahara, Hisaya Ito, Yoshibumi Tajima, and the list goes on. And even the dubbing in the U.S. version is good. Indeed, fans of Kaiju Ega can find a lot to love about Frankenstein Conquers the World. A sidebar article accompanies this one. It's simply entitled, The Weirdness of Frankenstein. One of the charms of Japanese monster movies is that they often come off as just a little bit weird. Part of this is due to the language differences and the difficulty of creating a phrase of equivalent meaning that matches the lip movements of a Japanese speaker. Another part may be due to cultural differences. Western audiences like everything to be plainly laid out, while Japanese seem to like their movies to be more open to differing interpretations. But, in addition to those considerations, Frankenstein Conquers the World comes across as even weirder than most. Certainly, the strangest aspect of the film is the origin of the monster. It is made clear that Frankenstein's growth and regenerative abilities are dependent on a steady supply of protein. The dismembered hand died because it ran out of liquid protein and crawled away looking for more. Yet only Frankenstein's heart was delivered to Hiroshima and then the city was destroyed. Fifteen years later, the Frankenstein boy turned up. Did the heart regenerate an entire new body for itself? How did it acquire protein when it was just a heart? The radiation from the Hiroshima blast may have enhanced the heart's regenerative ability, but it's never explained, and also hard to believe that a disembodied heart could survive and regrow into a young boy. In the film, it is said that the monster is Caucasian. This bit of dialogue is probably intended to reinforce the idea that the monster is entirely regenerated from the heart, which presumably was lifted from a Caucasian corpse. However, the creature's facial characteristics, undeniably Japanese-like, are at variance with the dialogue. 
Perhaps the producers thought the heavy makeup of the monster would obscure the actor's racial identity, but it didn't happen, and the dialogue remained unchanged, adding to the surreal atmosphere of the film. Revealing a hint of frustration, Forrest J. Ackerman dealt with this subject in Famous Monsters number 39 in an afternote to his article on the movie. He wrote, then to doubly confuse matters after carefully establishing that the Frankenstein monster is European, I get a second synopsis from the studio with even less info than the first, with one very important difference. In describing the origin of the new Frankenstein, it states that an orphaned waif in the heart of the Hiroshima Holocaust finds the heart of the Frankenstein monster and, driven by the hunger pangs of starvation, eats it. Thus, the baby being Japanese, the giant that he grew into, would be a Japanese monster. The alternative explanation smacks of a harried AIP rep trying to square the circle of a Japanese-looking Caucasian Frankenstein. Perhaps after being questioned about the incongruity between the studio synopsis and the accompanying publicity stills. The explicit connection between the beating heart delivered to Hiroshima and the rapidly growing Frankenstein appearing 15 years later is never made in the movie. However, the creature's regenerative ability and the mobility of his dismembered hand strongly suggest that the immortal heart has found a home in Frankenstein's body by some means or another. In real life, the answer might never be known, so in this aspect, Frankenstein Conquers the World is a case of art imitating life. There are plenty of other weird aspects about the movie. One is its title. Does Frankenstein even come close to conquering the world? He does manage to defeat Baragon, but that's about it. One wonders what progression led the AIP publicity department from Frankenstein vs. the Underground Monster to Frankenstein Conquers the World. Perhaps it was the same crew that came up with the poster for Yogg, Monster from Space, that actually depicted Gezera encircling the entire globe in his terror tentacles. A very strange scene occurs in the middle of the movie when a boatload of partiers is unexpectedly confronted by the monster. In typical Toho aquatic kaiju fashion, he emerges from underwater in the midst of churning bubbles. He growls at the ship as it passes by, then slowly submerges and disappears from view. What the heck? How did he get there? Where did he go? Why was he underwater? Does he have gills? Does he even need to breathe? The scene serves a purpose. As Frankie paws at the ship, we see that his lost hand is growing back. But what a weird way to show it. Maybe when the movie was conceived as Godzilla versus Frankenstein, it was Godzilla supposed to menace the ship. And like the scene at the farm, Subaraya thought it would be fun to substitute Frankie instead. The world may never know. Dr. Kawaji is a very weird character. Instead of meeting Dr. Bowen at Suko's apartment for dinner, he descends into the Franken dungeon to cut off an arm or a leg, based on the advice of Dr. Reisendorf. Instead of preparing to give the poor monster some anesthetic, Kawaji doses himself with a swig of hooch. 
True, he did previously refer to Frankenstein as more gorilla than human, but even gorillas deserve to be treated humanely. And why go so far as to amputate an entire limb? Surely it would be sufficient to remove the tip of a single finger in order to observe evidence of regrowth. Later, Kawaji announces his intention to disable the 20-meter Frankenstein by blinding him with explosives and then removing his heart and brain for study. All he is carrying is a small satchel containing his explosives. Does he expect to gut Frankenstein in the middle of a forest and remove his organs? And then what? The monster is more than 10 times the size of a human being. His heart would weigh between 310 and 860 kilograms, depending on whether the calculations are based scaling up the human statistics or as a percentage of the monster's given mass of 200 metric tons. Let's compromise and say 600 kilograms. That's about two-thirds of a ton. His brain should be almost four times the weight of his heart, or almost three tons. Good luck to Kawaji carrying them out of the forest and back to his lab. A weird man indeed. At the end of the movie, it's weird that an earthquake just happened to occur after Frankie defeated Baragon. It's weird that the only section of the Earth's crust that sank was right under Frankie and Baragon. And it's weird that the nimble monster didn't just scramble out of the gradually deepening pit in which he found himself. Reportedly, AIP and or Henry Saperstein didn't like that ending, so they asked that a giant octopus show up to bring closure. Now, Admittedly, it's weird that a giant octopus just happened to be wandering around in the mountains and showed up in the same spot as Frankenstein, but what's even weirder is that after requesting the scene, AIP apparently decided it was too weird and scrapped it. Just to recap, we have a movie wherein a baby may or may not have eaten the irradiated heart of the Frankenstein monster, then, 15 years later, grows to 20 meters and fights a heat ray shooting dinosaur that's been hibernating or living underground for over 67 million years. So a giant octopus showing up in the mountains is deemed too weird? That in itself may be the weirdest aspect of Frankenstein Conquers the World. I think it's fair to say that there wouldn't be a monster study group without G-Fan magazine. G-Fan is short for Godzilla fan and it's created by fans for fans. Founded in 1992 by Canadian educator J.D. Lees, G-Fan spans 128 issues and continues to be published on a quarterly basis. Featuring interviews with those who made and starred in classic Japanese special effects productions, in-depth analysis and behind-the-scenes reports, collectible roundups, book reviews, information about G-Fest, and subscriber exclusives, G-Fan is your ticket to Kaiju Paradise. Do yourself a favor and check out a subscription. In the U.S., it's $25 for one year, four issues. A two-year, eight-issue subscription is $45, and international subscriptions are definitely available. 
You can sign up today at g-fan.com. And while you're there, check out the back issues that are available. Just $6 a piece plus shipping. Unbeatable. I've been a subscriber for years and even written an article or two. And there's always room for new voices in G-Fan. Find out for yourself. Visit g-fan.com. Once more, we return to the G-Fan reading room. We're going to access issue number 32 from March and April of 1998. The article is entitled, A G-Fan Retrospective, War of the Gargantuas, by Richard Pusateri. An objective study of War of the Gargantuas brings up the challenge of approach how to approach a movie that features two big indescribable monsters of unknown origin that run amok, eat people, and wreck things while scientists try to convince the military that one of them is good. Is it fantasy, sci-fi, horror, or kaiju comedy? After Godzilla and Mothra, perhaps the Toho creatures that have crossed over most vividly into mainstream American awareness of cult movies are the giant brown and green humanoid creatures from War of the Gargantuas. The two giants may not be readily distinct to casual viewers, but they have a gargantuan fan base in the kaiju aficionado core. The casual viewer might even know that the brown one was good and the green one was bad, but the true fanatic knows them by name, Sanda and Gaila. They are called Frankensteins in the original Japanese version, Frankenstein no Kaiju Sanda Tai Gaila. Frankenstein's monsters, Sanda against Gaila, but they appear more like King Kong clones with humanoid faces. War of the Gargantuas must have been originally intended as a sequel to Frankenstein Conquers the World, but as in The Mysterians and Battle in Outer Space, that relationship is blurred. War of the Gargantuas begins where Frankenstein Conquers the World ends, with a giant mutant humanoid battling a giant octopus. The octopus actually seems to be the same in both movies, but the monstrous humanoid has changed drastically. The first Frankenstein monster looked like a deformed human being, but the gargantuas are altogether different creatures. They are humanoid, but much bigger than the first Frankenstein monster, and their bodies are covered with scales, or something, and hair or something. The movie opens with a ship heading toward a thunderstorm on a befogged sea. As if the helmsman doesn't have enough to worry about, he's suddenly snared in the slimy embrace of a giant octopus. Then, just as suddenly, the octopus is in the grasp of a giant humanoid monster. After dispatching the octopus, the hideous green humanoid capsizes the ship. 
The surviving helmsman tells incredulous maritime safety authority officers, in flashback, his tale of the horrible giant pursuing and eating the crew. The images of the terrified crew futilely trying to outswim the monster in the howling storm are truly scary. The doubting maritime cops seek out Dr. Paul Stewart, Russ Tamblin, because his research involved a Frankenstein that escaped years ago. Dr. Stewart, whose scientific work at the Frankenstein Institute is barely seen, described, or even mentioned, knows little except his Frankenstein cannot be involved. The references to the previous monster of Frankenstein Conquers the World are immediate and direct, but remain vague. Dr. Stewart relates that he had a Frankenstein that escaped and disappeared on Mount Fuji. A flashback to Dr. Stewart's Gargantua shows a furry ape boy that is bonded to the doctor's assistant, Akemi, Kumi Mizuno essentially reprising her role in Frankenstein Conquers the World. The cuddly kaiju kitty seen here has no resemblance to the dangerous teenage Frankenstein monster of Frankenstein Conquers the World. In the first few scenes, the military authorities and the reporters have the same suspicions they did in the earlier film. The authorities and press immediately link the new monster and Dr. Stewart's missing creature, but the scientist insists they cannot be the same creature, just as Dr. Bowen, Nick Adams, did in Frankenstein. The new monster's ocean home is the main factor in Dr. Stewart's belief that it is not his Frankenstein, whose mountain home is revealed by recent photos of giant footprints in the snow. Stewart and Akemi decide to investigate the mountain sightings while Dr. Mamiya, Kenji Sahara, goes to the beach to examine the scene of another ship wrecked by the monster. There he finds cellular material that is eventually confirmed to be from the green gargantua. Then, at Haneda Airport, the green marine Frankenstein comes ashore and promptly attacks. The highlight of the raid is the monster graphically eating a woman and then spitting out a bouquet of flowers. More about the bouquet later. Sunlight breaking out from the cloud cover frightens the monster and he retreats back to the sea. Tokyo is the next stop on the green gargantua's tour of terror. News of the monster's presence brings Dr. Stewart and Akami, and their wait is not a long one. Gaila's appearance at an open-air nightclub is literally a showstopper. This scene is probably the most memorable of the movie, as the song, The Words Get Stuck in My Throat, will never be forgotten by anyone who hears it. After a Caucasian singer, Kip Hamilton, delivers the demented song in English, the audience of mostly kimono-clad Japanese suddenly screams and runs. Kip looks puzzled. You'd think she'd be accustomed to such a reaction to her singing, unaware that the giant has appeared behind her. Her confusion turns to terror as Gyla scoops the vocalist up and she appears to be his next snack. Apparently, the nightclub staff is aware of the giant's aversion to illumination, and the house lights are ordered turned on. The lights stun the monster into dropping the shrieking songstress, capping off as surreal a scene as ever delivered by Toho. The image of a red-haired beauty in the clutches of a giant green beast is as indelible as the song.
in a desperate attempt to save the city by scaring Gaila off. All citizens of Tokyo are urged by the authorities to turn on every light. The monster departs and the military tracks his movements along the mountains to a river. While tanks and the impressive Mazer cannons are convoyed to the area, the rural residents do their part by lighting bonfires. After the armored units are deployed, the green gargantua creeps around using the forest for cover and concealment. The miniature pastoral landscapes are among the best sets the Toho Nursery has presented. The detailed miniature trees and shrubbery are delightfully elaborate. Eventually, the conflict erupts into violence. The cannons and tanks commence bombarding and Gaila counterattacks. The Franken-clone's fury proves overwhelming to the armored units. Tanks are tossed as if they were toys. It's a complete rout for the army and the remaining troops fall back. The next stage is an electrical assault. Generators and converters are put in place as a trap for the Gargantua while he is vulnerable, enjoying the river's water that apparently reminds him of his home in the sea. A sequence of helicopters being used to lure Gaila into the trap is reminiscent of a scene in Varen the Unbelievable. As in the earlier kaiju movie, a few aircraft fly dangerously close to the monster before it finally manages to seize and smash a couple. One helicopter successfully avoids the monster's grasp and lures it into the trap. High voltage beams and maser cannon fire. Toho's version of a lethal electric light parade zap the monster as the forest no longer hides or protects him. Stunned by these special weapons, the Gargantua stumbles into the river and instead of the water's restorative powers, he receives electric shocks from the massive hidden electrodes. Just as the military seems to be getting the upper hand, there comes a ferocious roar, heralding the arrival of another giant humanoid monster. Coming to the green Gargantua's aid is another Frankenstein, this one a shaggy brown. Upon receiving reports from the astounded field soldiers, the military command settles on names for the two Gargantuas. The Sea Frankenstein will be referred to as Gaila. The Mountain Frankenstein will be referred to as Sanda. Kai or Gai are Japanese characters pertaining to the sea, while San, in combination with a nominal character, means mountain in Japanese. After saving his green clone cousin, Gaila, from the electrically booby-trapped river, the brown gargantua, Sanda, nurses him back to health, keeping him supplied with lake water. Meanwhile, with their hunch that there is more than one monster verified, the team of Stuart, Akami, and Mamiya find evidence that a piece of Sanda's flesh may have flowed downstream to the ocean, where feeding on protein-rich plankton, it grew into Gaila. In true Toho style, the general population decides to ignore the warnings of monsters on the loose and enjoy an outing in the midst of danger. Even Dr. Stewart admits, I don't think vacationers should be turned away just because fish become scarce in a lake, as the group of students hikes uphill into the area where the gargantuas are regrouping. Just as Baragon did in Frankenstein Conquers the World, Gaila makes a meal out of a group of youths in the Misty Mountains. Meanwhile, in another homage to the earlier movie, Sanda rescues a fallen and cliffhanging Akami, as did Frankenstein rescue in place out of harm's way 
Dr. Kawaji in Frankenstein Conquers the World. Completing his good deed, Sanda comes across Gaila taking a nap following his murderous meal. Enraged at his genetic relative's antisocial dining habits, Sanda angrily flogs Gaila with an uprooted tree, sending the green gargantua fleeing back toward Tokyo. As the movie moves into the final act, the special effects and music dramatically improve. Gaila's prowling through the darkened Tokyo, and the armor and maser cannon columns moving into position inspire new, strikingly effective Ifukube themes to complement the scene's increased suspense and pace. Akemi begins an emotional, almost maternal crusade to save her fuzzball ape boy, now the grown-up Sanda from the insensitive military bent on destroying both giants. Dr. Stewart is reluctantly dragged along. Thinking she's coming to Sanda's aid, she runs right into Gaila's hands and almost becomes another human snack. Sanda appears and causes Gaila to drop Akemi at least 10 meters to a concrete stairway, just as Kip Hamilton was dropped at the nightclub. The climax begins as Sanda confronts Gaila and tries with body language to discourage the green gargantua. Gaila is frankly not impressed and tries to attack his brother. The ensuing wrestling match is well executed, making good use the freedom of movement afforded by the humanoid costumes. Haruo Nakajima as Gaila and Hiroshi Sekita as Sanda work well together in the battle ballet. Nakajima has been quoted as saying, this was, after Godzilla, his favorite role. His choreographing the fight sequences undoubtedly increased his satisfaction. During the Sanda-Gaila fight, the musical score moves into new dramatic themes as the tanks and maser cannons roll onto the scene. The fighting Frankensteins are expertly lit and photographed as their struggle wreaks blocks of buildings. This combination of the suit actor's choreography, the rousing score, and miniature sets blends well into a cohesive finale. The action moves to the dock area, where the Maser cannons begin their attack on Gaila, apparently heeding Dr. Stewart and Akami's pleas by sparing Sanda. After several more minutes of exciting effects, the two giants tumble into the sea where helicopters begin an aerial bombardment. As the aircraft press their attack, the two Frankensteins thrash about, but Mother Nature provides the final blow. As in Frankenstein Conquers the World, the Earth itself swallows the monsters. This time, a submerged volcano suddenly erupts, and the struggling gargantuas disappear in the smoke and steam. The build-up to the Tokyo showdown between Gaila and Sanda with the military intervention is worth the wait. The movie's exciting climax makes up for the simple, superficial story with its vague inconsistencies. The Defense Force's attack on Gaila has good model work combined with pyrotechnics and animated maser rays. The rural and urban miniature sets are uniformly excellent. While the special effects are the movie's strongest point, Russ Tamblin's pedestrian work diminishes every other actor's performance. Tamblin's apparent lack of enthusiasm and the total absence of any chemistry between him and Kumi Mizuno leave all their scenes uncomfortably stiff. 
Their relationship is strictly business. The closest he comes to showing any affection toward the gorgeous Mizuno comes after her brush with death in the last act. Tamblin says, You're feeling better? Good. I was beginning to think I'd lost an assistant there for a while. Tamblin rarely even looked at Mizuno, and the lack of interaction impoverished her presence. Mizuno's character was also demoted from a doctor in Frankenstein Conquers the World to a mere assistant in War of the Gargantuas. Tamblin's minimal performance is especially shallow when compared to the earnest work done by Nick Adams as the American doctor in Frankenstein Conquers the World. Adams tried to blend his serious parts appropriately into the dramatic scenes, but he was still able to convey a genuinely cheerful and upbeat persona in the lighter sections. In his similar role, Tamblin just delivered his lines impassively and smirked a few times. Whatever factors dampened Tamblin's performance appear to have contaminated the entire cast, because all of the principal's acting seems particularly uninspired. Jun Tazaki faithfully brought his usual dramatic presence to his role as the military commander, but there is little opportunity for him to project any emotion beyond cool authority in the emergency situation. Hisaya Ito delivered his trademark Toho stone-faced military leader as the head maritime safety authority officer. None of the actors have vivid characters to portray, and their lackluster performances reflect that. Kenji Sahara as Dr. Mamiya is shy and hesitant, very reminiscent of his role in The Mysterians. Sahara's role here is basically the same as that of Tadeo Takashima, Dr. Kawaji, in Frankenstein Conquers the World. However, in War of the Gargantuas, the role of the male assistant doctor was considerably reduced from the crucial role he played in the earlier movie. Sahara was reportedly reluctant to accept this minor role after having starred so often. The diminished importance of his character might have dampened Sahara's enthusiasm. There are many stories and theories about the Americanization of the film. While the credits list the story by Reuben Berkowitz, Henry Saperstein suggests that his team only added dialogue and rearranged scenes for the American market. The screenplay credit is shared by Takeshi Kimura, now known as Keiru Mabuchi, and Ishiro Honda. Kimura reportedly lacked confidence in his script and therefore director Honda collaborated. The result is a very spare story with simple dialogue. Clear references to the monster of Frankenstein Conquers the World are absent. The young Frankenstein or Gargantua referred to by Dr. Stewart was found by a mountain guide with no mention of Hiroshima, the A-bomb, or radioactivity. The American version removes all references to Frankenstein, although sharp-eyed viewers can clearly see the actors' mouths pronouncing the word Frankenstein, while the dubbed English voices say a giant or gargantua. Oddly, there are at least two scenes in the original Japanese version that do not have Dr. Stewart, although he is there in the American version. In the first, a maritime safety authority officer is alone when he visits the shipwreck survivor in the hospital. In the American version, the reshot sequence is placed later in the story and Dr. Stewart is along this time. As the officer and the doctor walk through the hospital, Dr. Stewart makes a remark, missing from the Japanese version, 
about a desiccated hand that is still a mystery, science is unable to relate it to any known creature. The lost hand vaguely refers to the monster's detached but living hand in Frankenstein Conquers the World, but any connection or significance is quite obscure. In the American version, the scene of the Maritime Safety Authority divers investigating the wreck was apparently reshot, adding Dr. Stewart to the action. The order of several early scenes was also shuffled. The first sighting from shore of Gila, snared in fishing nets, was shortened, thus eliminating a better view of the green gargantua from the waist up. Another scene of Dr. Stewart, Akami, and Dr. Mamiya discussing the sighting is completely different in the American version. The rearrangement of scenes left another puzzle. In Gaila's airport raid scene, after devouring the unfortunate cleaning woman, he spits something out. In the Japanese version, there follows a quick cut to a floral bouquet lying on the ground with no further reference or explanation. In the American version, after Gaila spits, there is a point of view shot of her clothing landing on the ground, a zoom to the clothes, and then the cut to the mysterious bouquet. The American version contains scenes that do not appear in the Japanese version. One shows Dr. Stewart and his Japanese associates discussing the two monsters' different natures. That scene where a Japanese scientist makes a comparison to the biblical brothers Cain and Abel, and another brief exposition after Sanda chases Gaila out of the mountains, do not appear in the Japanese version. A considerable amount of Akira Ifukube's score was replaced by new music. While the original score was repetitive during the first half, it gets on track before the climax. The American version's music is also repetitive, seems inappropriate in spots, and tends to start and stop abruptly, sometimes out of sync with the action. The real show is clearly saved for the monsters, and their conflict is at stage center. The English-language version alludes to a biblical Cain and Abel relationship, but it appears from the movie that Gaila is just bad to the bone, and Sanda is the good monster that Akami believes him to be. Sanda's good works for his brother are ignored as Gaila follows his baser instinct to eat people. During the film's climax in Tokyo, Sanda keeps shaking his head and waving his right hand as if to signify, no, your actions are not acceptable, or perhaps simply, hey, knock it off. Gaila's continuous attacks leave Sanda no alternative but to respond in kind. War of the Gargantuas is devoid of the many relevant themes and subtexts of Frankenstein Conquers the World. References to real-world problems or social issues do not interfere with the story of giant monsters battling for no reason beyond instinct. It is the simple story of a duel between a good monster and an evil monster, it is emphatically disconnected from the real world, which is perhaps symbolized by the unreal weaponry. After all is said and done, in spite of everyone's best intentions and efforts, a volcano erupts and sweeps the monsters away. Perhaps this is the true kaiju fanatic's ideal movie a sci-fi fantasy horror film where hideous giant humanoids are calmly accepted as a fact of life, and in the end, after all mankind's efforts fail, 
a freak force of nature destroys them. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode of Monster Study Group, our 10th episode taking a look at Frankenstein and the Gargantuas. Don't forget, if you would like to leave feedback on Twitter or Instagram or by writing to monsterstudygroup at outlook.com, I would truly appreciate that, as well as a rating and review on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. GFAN is published by Daikaiju Enterprises Limited, and written consent was obtained to present today's articles. Just a reminder that next week will be an off week for Monster Study Group. We will return on October 24th with a very special Halloween movie-themed episode. Until next time, keep studying monsters. Monsters.